Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Um, I will read the word of God and I will end by saying this is the word of God. And please respond by saying thanks be to God. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give gifts, give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? All right. I always to mess up this mic, so I want to be sure that um, everybody can hear me. Um, let me start by saying welcome to everyone to City Church. Um, we've been going through a series over the past few weeks now. We had a little bit of a break during Easter, um, and then we're resuming the series now. So what we're doing basically is going through the Sermon on the Mount between, in the, in the chapters of the Gospel of Matthew between 5 and 7. And I think Pastor Femi came up with this brilliant idea of assuming that we are citizens of a particular kingdom and that this sermon within these chapters is actually defining the characteristics or the characters of the citizens of this kingdom. So what we've done is we've gone through different characters as we've gone through this sermon. And we started with contrite citizens, persecuted citizens, missional citizens, righteous citizens, broken citizens, restorative citizens, wealthy, prayerful, confident. The last one we did before Easter was humble citizens. And today we are looking at persistent citizens. Now let me say something about this. It has really blessed me to actually go through this, this series so far. We're drawing towards the end of the sermon now, but it has really blessed me to be able to trace through each of these characters and try to see my place in that story or in that sermon. So I'll encourage us all to, if you haven't heard any one of these um, sermons, to go on our SoundCloud um, website and see how you can actually listen to some of these. Today we are looking at persistent citizens, looking at the chapter that we, the, other, uh, the scripture that we've read this morning. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we have sung today that you will indeed awaken our hearts, that you will illumine our minds and you would help us to hear you true and clear. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay. I was born into a family of four. So siblings, four of, there were four of us, basically. 
And we had this kind of a close-knit family, right? We never really had any troubles. As far as I can remember, in, our, in my childhood, we never really had, I mean, apart from the squabbles we had amongst ourselves, there wasn't anyone that was particularly gravely ill or anything like that. You know, we just carried on in our close-knit, you know, togetherness as a family. So I had an elder sister, I had a younger sister, and I had a younger brother. So it was, you know, picture perfect in some sort of sense. Two boys, two girls. And we went through life in different stages. My parents were extremely hardworking. They tried to imbibe in us that same sort of hardworking mentality. Listen, you won't do anything in this life, or you won't get anything in this life unless you work hard. And, you know, that's what we tried to do, as far as, you know, the stubbornness will allow some of us, anyway. But we eventually moved on through life, went through university, all of us. And then we, as God will have it, we found ourselves in different parts of the world. So at some point in time, I, I was living in the UK. My younger sister was living in the US. My younger brother was living in Canada. My, my other sister was here in Nigeria. But sometime, I think in 2012, I had to relocate back to Nigeria. I relocated back to Nigeria. Um, and even while we were living on these different parts, we were still together. I, we always talked to each other every time. You know, we couldn't do things without one another. If something was happening, we had to tell somebody that was here so that the person would be part of it. But I relocated back to Nigeria in 2012. And a few months after I relocated back, something very ordinary just happened. You know, something that you would not you know, glance, you, know, you wouldn't even take any root of it. My other sister just started coughing. She just started coughing, you know, a regular cough. And we treated it like you would normally treat any other thing, right? We would try to, you know, get drugs for the cough. But the problem with this cough was that it never went away. It only progressively got worse. I mean, when you have a cough for about two months, you know something is wrong, right? You know something is gravely wrong. And so we knew something was wrong. And so eventually they took her to a hospital. At, at this point in time, I wasn't bothered. You have to realize something. In our family, we, because we hadn't, yet, we hadn't really had any jokes, we hadn't had any, for instance, I hadn't, perhaps, I hadn't had any, the, the worst illness I had had, for instance, was malaria or maybe one instance of typhoid. So there wasn't anything that, you know, we were, I was still looking at this thing like something that was normal. Oh, let her go to the hospital. She should be fine after that. I just started a job here in Nigeria at the time. And then she went to the hospital the first time. They thought it was something. They gave her drugs for it. A month had passed. The cough was getting even worse. And by this time, her cough was hoarse. It was when you're coughing and you're almost croaking. By the time we got to the fourth month, my sister couldn't get out of bed. And it was then that we realized that this thing is beyond just going to the hospital. And so we started to seek for expert uh, medical advice as to what the case was. We had gone to several medical professionals, and then we found one person that said, listen, from what we've seen, there is a growth in her lung. At that time, they thought it was something small. Remember, at, at this point in time, we were thinking, oh, my sister had, of years before that, she had actually had uh, um, some sort of a cyst removed from her um, two years ago, and we thought that that was a benign thing. But by the time we got to this one, the first professional that we saw said that he suspected, without necessary testing, that this growth was actually malignant. And so we, of course, my parents refused to believe it. I mean, like any, any normal people believe, you know, and they, they went into what we'll call massive prayers. I was an advocate for that. You see, I had only become a Christian about three or four years before that. 
you know, and I was a massive advocate for let's pray. Without, every time I went to see my sister, every time I was with her, I was like, let's pray. I could see the reluctance in her face, but she still agreed to pray with us. Eventually, it became so bad that we had to make a decision as to where to take my sister to. We had the option of either taking her to US, which became really expensive, and then we settled for taking her to South Africa. I remember the day they were going to South Africa, my sister and my mom, they were going to South Africa just as they got to the, as they were at the airport, we were praying for them that this journey should be smooth, that everything should be fine. As they landed in South Africa, they were robbed at gunpoint. They were robbed of everything that they had, including their passports, right? All the money that they came, some of the money that they actually intended to use to pay the medical bills while they were there, they were robbed of that. Somehow, somehow, as God will have it, they eventually did go to the hospital, and the doctor said they had to do some sort of an emergency operation. Um, but by this time, my sister was, she was really, really bad. I remember speaking to her over the phone while she was still there, and she, she could barely talk to me. So they said, listen, at this stage, we can't do anything. We can't do anything. We just have to see what we can do to actually relieve the pressure that she has on her lungs so that she can travel back to Nigeria. And so they said, for us to do that, we have to do a bit of a small operation. And so they did that. And while they were doing that operation, my sister passed. I remember, because at that point in time, my, my younger sister who was living in the US had to move to South Africa to actually assist my mom. I couldn't, I couldn't leave here because of some certain things. But in the end, my younger sister called me over the phone, and she was literally wailing over the phone, saying that my, my elder sister was dead. It was a huge jolt to my family. And it was the kind of response that we had. For instance, my younger brother, when he eventually came back from Canada for the funeral, and I, at one point something was happening, and I said, let's pray. One of the things he said was that, mm, what good is that going to do? What good is that going to do? Now let me say something. I am willing to bet, I am willing to bet that nearly everyone in this room has some sort of a similar story. Nearly everyone in this room has a story, maybe not necessarily ending up in the kind of situation that my sister ended up in with death, but you have a story of really, really praying for something and not getting it. Something that you really desired, that you felt was really essential to your living, but you didn't get it. And you prayed hard. You called other people to pray for you. You obeyed everything that you knew about prayers, but yet you didn't get it. The response in the face of a disappointment like that, frankly, I'm speaking from experience, is not to pray. You don't get the motivation to pray for the next thing. You don't. And then you read the passage we read this morning, and it sounds so simple. Jesus says, ask, and it shall be given to you. For everyone who does what? Who asks receives. And then you wonder, it, it, it cannot be that simple. Because I can enumerate the number of things that I've asked for that I haven't received. It can't be as simple as just saying, ask, and you shall receive. So we're talking about persistence. But really, we're talking about persistence in prayer. 
Now, I know we've already dealt with prayerful citizens, but today what we're trying to look at is a different aspect of prayer, and it is being persistent in prayer. It is hard to be persistent in prayer in the face of disappointments, especially when you know that you have given time to prayer. So this morning, I would like us to consider this topic of persistent citizens under, Femi, you like this, three headings. <laughs> I really tried hard to see how I could make it fit in one of those, your, you know, your usual P this, P that, P this, right? So listen to this. The promises for persistence, the absence of persistence, and the basis for persistence. How about that? <laughs> so we're going to do that under those three headings. The promises for persistence, the lack or the absence of persistence, and the basis for persistence. So number one, Jesus promises. So the passage that we, that we read this morning, if you look at it carefully, very short, but there are three parts to it. In the first part, the first two parts, Jesus is making very clear promises. So he makes a promise, he, he reiterates that promise in the second part, and then in the third part, he emphasizes that promise with a parable. Those are the three parts we have there. So he says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone, this is the reiteration now, for everyone who asks, finds, right? Or everyone who asks, receives. For everyone who seeks, will surely find. And anyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Not doors, but the door will be opened unto the person. And then he gives this wonderful parable that we all, can be very familiar with. Both his audience in the time in which he was speaking and we right now can actually familiarize with. But let me say something. When Jesus actually gives the promises, he uses three active verbs. He uses the verbs ask, seek, and knock. But when it comes to the parable, he doesn't talk about two of those verbs. He just talks about asking. He says, ask, seek, and knock. In fact, what I'm basically saying here is that he could have easily said, ask, and you will receive. For everyone who asks, receives. Who out of you, if his child comes and asks him for bread, will give him a stone? But there was a there was a it was necessary for him to not just stay with ask. He said, ask, seek, and knock. There is a significance to it. Because embroiled in that promise that Jesus Christ is giving, which, by the way, does not just appear in this book of Matthew alone. We see it in many other books, in the book of James, in the book of First John, in the, book of, in the gospel of John as well. Jesus Christ, or a promise that says that whatever you ask, for instance, in my name, you will surely receive. But here, Jesus is actually helping us to clarify something. He's saying it's not just a simple question of asking. So when we ask... When we ask, in fact, most of our prayers are about asking. It's just making a simple petition. My daughter comes up to me, for instance, and she says, Daddy, I want, she calls it lollipop. It's lollipop she wants. Daddy, I want lollipop. Every time, it's lollipop she wants. Because she knows there's a bag of lollipops in the fridge, right? We keep it there as, you know, reward or whatever, whenever she's, she's doing very well. Daddy, I want lollipop. Now, she already knows that my response is not always the same. It is either something like, no, it's too late. I can't give you lollipop. You need to go to bed. Come brush your teeth, go to bed. Or I will give you lollipop when you have done so and so and so, right? Or sometimes she will say, Daddy, I want lollipop. I'll come, follow me. And I give her one. But she knows that 
my response is never the same. Sometimes it's a no, sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's somewhere, it's somewhere in between. But it doesn't stop my daughter from coming to ask me. And she comes to ask me whenever she feels like. There is a childlike attitude with which God wants us to actually just ask him for stuff. And so he says, he doesn't embellish it with what you should ask for or what you shouldn't ask for. He says, ask and eat. What is the eat? It will be, you know, ask and it will be given to you. There is a childlike attitude that God wants us to just make our requests, as the Bible says, known to him. But then it's not, it's not just about asking. He says, seek and you would find. And you know that seeking really has to do with searching for something that is perhaps lost or something that you can't find, something that you need that you're not, you're not able to get at that particular point in time. Jesus just doesn't just want to stop us asking. He wants us to go a step further with seeking. So what are we seeing here? There is the aspect of asking, but it is not just asking alone. It's also moving a step further, which I think I would call a bit of a maturity process. And we move on to seeking. But now we're not just seeking for things. We're seeking for the giver of those things. And so we see, for instance, in Jeremiah 29, 13, where Jesus, where he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There is, a, there is a place of sincerity in the way we actually ask for the things that we ask for. And that is one of the things that I think Christ wants to bring out in telling us that we should ask and then we should seek. It is in Psalm 34 verse 10 that he says that the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, when we ask for things, we have to think about the fact that as we ask for those things, we should also be seeking for the giver of those things. Knocking is perhaps another step, but here is where you actually see an emphasis on persistence. Knocking, in some sense, indicates a desperateness about a situation. If I'm in my study sometimes and my daughter wants to, is looking for me, Sometimes she just comes and she just keeps on banging on the door. And I know that I can't concentrate on anything I'm doing until I open that door. And it is in my best interest to open the door. But knocking indicates a desperateness. Sometimes she comes in and what do you want? Nothing. You know, she's just looking for her daddy, right? But the thing here is that if we're talking about asking and then we seek for the person that actually gives those things. We come to a point where we are in a dire situation, but because we know that we are depending on this person that is the giver of these things, we don't have any option but to keep pestering this person and saying, give me what I want. Jesus illustrates this perfectly in Luke chapter 11. And there, he's talking about prayer, and he says, that suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So Jesus Christ is saying here that there is, a, there is, first of all, 
there is a, an audacity, which King James actually calls importunate behavior. That shameless, oh, I'm just going to go to this clinic, I'm just going to ask for it, and I'll keep on pestering this guy until he gives me what I want. And he's saying here that if you have human beings that behave in this kind of way, where you keep on knocking on the door you in the middle of the night. By the way, in this, in this scenario, what you actually had was as a customary thing. In fact, we still have it in, our, in, in Nigerian custom in some sort of form. Somebody cannot come to your house, especially when the person has been on a bit of a long journey and come to your house, whether, whatever the thing is, and you don't have food to give to the person. It was almost like, I mean, when I was growing up, my parents felt that it was necessary. I never really understood it. My parents felt it was necessary if a visitor came, unannounced though, you know, it's not all these days that you call somebody and tell the person that you're coming. Those days, you just show up anytime you like. 8.30 p.m., children are about to go to sleep. The guy just shows up with his family, you know. And my parents felt that it was not just necessary. It was an obligation to find them something to eat and drink. And sometimes I'll be thinking, ah, Maybe I'm thinking of the food that I'm supposed to eat the next day. And that is what they are giving these people to eat. I'm like, must they give them this thing? Ah, they have their own house now. If we were the ones that came to their house, would they be giving us something to eat? But there was a bit of a similar situation here in this time where if somebody came on a long journey, it was necessary and customary to actually find him something to eat. There was a reason behind it. The person has traveled and the person actually is you know, looking for, he's hungry and needs something to eat. He's coming from his own house. He's not in a familiar setup. So this person would go, because he doesn't have anything in his own house now, would go to his neighbor to say, give me something so that at least I can give my guest who has, who has traveled. But it is a dire circumstance. It is a circumstance that you can't do anything about because it's customary and because you're in some sense obligated to give this person this thing. You are basically saying, please, 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 give me this thing. I really need, really need it. And because this person realizes that if he doesn't answer you, you are going to keep knocking on his door, Jesus Christ is saying that this person will answer you. There is a similar story in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus Christ, in trying to emphasize the point of praying continuously and not giving up, he tells the story of a widow, mark this, a widow who is being oppressed, and then she goes to a judge and asks, she asks for justice. The judge's response is this. This judge is supposed to be an unjust judge, and here's his response. Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Again, it is because this woman is persistent. She is basically knocking on the door of this judge, of, of this judge so that she receives the justice that is owed her. And Jesus Christ says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Brothers and sisters, what am I saying? Jesus Christ says, ask, seek, and knock. With the promise that when you ask, you will receive. When you seek, you will find. When you knock, the door will be open to you. That promise is embroiled in the fact that we don't lose sight of the fact of the one who is actually the giver of the things that we ask for. And we have to, on the basis of the fact that we trust this giver, persistently and continually ask him. Let me say something about Luke 18 and that, part, and that story about the, the widow and the unjust judge. You know that what was actually happening there was that the widow was actually looking for, the widow was actually looking for justice. 
And God's response or Jesus' response about that is saying, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So you see, at that time, what, what happened was that people were actually in different forms of oppression. And one of the things that was very important to them was justice. But they were aware that there was no way to get justice except they cry out to God. But there was an agitation. People want, as human beings, we want to see things done now, 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 now. And for them, if somebody was actually being unjust to them, they wanted to see the person get their, basically get their, they wanted to be vindicated from that thing. They wanted that, that's why the woman was going to the, to the judge and saying, you know, give me justice. I want my justice now. But God, that is the ultimate judge and the perfect judge that brings justice in the perfect way that he knows how, sometimes he's slow in our own human eyes. And so it is that context in which he's saying to them, if you see that a, an unjust judge is still able to, because of somebody who is importunate, give justice to this widow, how much more God who is all-wise, all-knowing, all-just? So we have the promise that Jesus Christ makes to us. But that's verse 7 and verse 8. But when we go to verse 9, and Jesus Christ gives a parable, there is a way in which I imagine that that parable comes in my own head. This is not what the way it is in the Bible. It is as though Jesus Christ is saying, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And then there's somebody there saying, Ah, you can't tell me that. Do you know how much, how much I've been asking for? And you just tell me just to ask like that, and I'll get and Jesus Christ is saying, my friend, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, everyone that asks will receive. And everyone who seeks will find. Anyone who knocks, a door will be open to you. Look, it's not just me. I have friends. I have people that I know that they've been asking. They've been looking for things. They've not gotten anything. And Jesus Christ said, my friend, what, why, what, can't you see? Look at a, your human parents. When you go and you ask them for bread, will they give you stone? How can you now imagine that God himself will not even do much more? You see, the thing here is that whether subconsciously or consciously, we offer, we offer objections at various levels to this promise that Jesus Christ actually makes. And I want to talk about three of those objections today. I, I find myself in at least one or two of them. So the first objection that we see is that we think prayer is unnecessary. Now, if you're a thoughtful Christian, you look around, you look around you, just look around yourself. Here in Lagos is enough. And you see a lot of people, just people around you getting on with, they're getting on fine. There's no problem. They're getting on fine without prayer. People seem to receive the very things that you pray for without prayer. Right? And even you yourself that you've been praying for the same thing for like, you know, a long time. You're not receiving them. But you see, you know, you seem to see everybody around you thriving tremendously. I was um, listening to something a, a couple of days ago um, on... Um, Dangote's daughter's wedding. There's this Kenyan radio uh, talk show host. His name is Jeff Konange. This guy is one of the, as in, you know, you don't, you don't know 
about Nigeria until you hear somebody that is not in Nigeria talk about Nigerians. It was the funniest thing I've ever heard. The guy, he was talking about, he, he was basically invited by um, Aliko Dangote for his daughter's wedding in Lagos, which, by the way, was, you know, was grand. It was, grand is an understatement, right? You see it and then you, but, but the way the guy was talking about this wedding, he said, when he first landed in Motala Mohammed International Airport, that the party that was waiting for him, it was, it was impeccable. That people were wearing Agbada, and you know, the Agbada was starched, you know? He said, when you touch it, it was hard. It was like paper, you know? And then they would carry it and put it like this, and look at, oh, God has a right. You know, the funny thing is that the guy is talking about something that we are very familiar with, but he's saying it in his, with his own perspective. He talked about the way the ballroom was, was just magnificently decked, and the food was, he said, there was nothing you wanted when it, come, when it came to food, that the food was just all kinds of things, lobster this, shrimp this, chicken that, any kind of thing you wanted. And, you know, and he was just basically trying to discuss how, when he talked about the emir of, uh, of Kano and the sultan of Sokoto, when they came, he was like, he said they were like, Northern horsemen, you know, with all their regalia, 14 of them, you know, they came with their regalia. And, you know, when the guy wanted to speak, he was speaking Queen's English. You know, th these are things that you and I are familiar with. But the way this guy described it, it was quite funny. But the thing that struck me in what, when he was talking about these things is that these are the kinds of things that we look around us. And he's very, very familiar with us here in Lagos. When we look at, you know, uh, um, what they call them, celebrity type weddings or those kinds of things. And a lot of us look at these things and we, Let's face it, we imagine, oh, how I wish at least I was able to have that. Maybe you don't think you want, the, you want to have the whole thing, but there are aspects of it that you think it would be nice to have, isn't it? But then you look at people, like the people that you're looking at are not Christians. And here you are, you have been pray, praying for just one job. One job, just to get work to do. You don't even want all these ones now. You know that there's, there's time for growth. You can grow. You have agreed that you will grow. Eh? And you've not yet gotten it. And somebody is coming to tell you that, listen, keep on praying for this thing. You know, you will get it. And so there's a way we can think that prayer is unnecessary. But people who are farmers, and you say a farmer is getting his good crops not because he prays, but because of his labor. A woman is successfully delivered of a baby not because of prayer, but because of the skill of the medical team. And so we say, oh, we're not going to have our baby in Nigeria. We're going to have our baby in, in the U.S. Are you looking at me? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Even as Christians, we may not necessarily voice this objection. It sounds ridiculous, right? We may not necessarily voice this objection, but we certainly house the thoughts and reflect it in the way that we behave. We think subconsciously, money can do what prayer does. It is quicker and it is less time consuming. So prayer does not make that much of a difference. If you have a problem, ask yourself, what are you thinking about first? How do you address that problem? If it is a, a grave one, I can tell you, when my sister fell ill, do you know what I was doing? I was searching for places and the cost of chemotherapy. That was my response. If you are 
if you have this objection, either consciously or subconsciously, about the fact that prayer is unnecessary, maybe we are not thinking about it the right way. Because you see, we need to distinguish between the gifts of God as creator and the gifts of God as father. What a writer, Paul Miller, would call creation gifts and redemption gifts. It is perfectly true that God gives, his, gives certain gifts to people whether they pray or not. In fact, he says in Matthew chapter 5 that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But it is God's redemption gifts that we absolutely have to pray for. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, passage that we have read today, it is not material things that are referred to here. When Jesus says that Father, the Father gives good gifts to his children, but rather it is spiritual blessings, daily forgiveness, deliverance from evil, peace, the increase of faith, hope, and love. In fact, what Matthew calls good gifts here, Luke in his own adaptation of that same parable, calls the Holy Spirit. So you might ask me, so are you saying that we shouldn't be praying for material things? Let me give you three answers. Three answers to that question. Well, first of all, the answer is no, you should. But we ought to pray for material things or material needs, not because we think that without them. Let me give, for instance, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, we are, we are told to ask for our daily bread. We, are, we ought to ask for our daily bread, not because that if we don't ask for it, we are going to starve. Now, I can guarantee you here that nearly everyone in this room has not prayed for their daily bread every day. Eh? In years. In years. But you are all sitting here and you have eaten, at least you ate yesterday if you are not fasting. So it is not that if you don't pray for your daily bread that you would starve to death. But it is because as Christians we recognize that that daily bread comes from God. And it is, our, it, it is not only our duty, but it is necessary for us to acknowledge God, to acknowledge that we are fully dependent upon God. So that's one reason why you should ask. Two, when we gather for prayers here at City Church, we refer to our prayers as kingdom-centered prayers. We take our cue from the Lord's Prayer, where everything that we ask for, including our daily needs, it's centered on God's kingdom and what God is doing. In asking for material things, our priority should be seeking God's kingdom first, since we are promised that every other thing in Matthew chapter 6 will be added. And finally, let me tie these two together. So on the one hand, ask for your daily needs. On the other thing, you have to have the kingdom of God as your priority. But in James chapter 4, I think he ties these things together. He says... You do not have because you do not ask. So there is a trap of falling into the not asking part. But then he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there is a trap that we can fall into where we say, oh, prayer is not necessary, so I'm not even going to ask. That is one error. But then there is, oh, let me pray. I want this. But then do we question our motives? Jesus Christ is the perfect example of that. In Jesus Christ, we see that as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and says, if this cup can pass over me, please let it do 
but not my will, but thine. So he does, he avoids those two errors. In the first instance, he asks. He doesn't say prayer is not necessary and not ask. He asks, but at the same time, he's not asking with selfish motive. So the other objection that we can give is that prayer is unproductive. Prayer is unproductive. On the one hand, you say, um, all these people, are not, they are, look at how they are living life large. But they're not praying. But me, that I've been praying, I'm not getting what I want. So therefore, prayer must be unproductive. Now, this is the position that I found myself when my sister passed. It is a familiar problem, a problem that I know that you guys are familiar with. It is called the familiar problem of unanswered prayer. Many of us would have prayed for things that we didn't get to pass an exam or to get that job opportunity or for a loved one to be healed, as in my own case, or the person only got worse and died. But let me tell you something. This objection that prayer is unproductive in the face of of the disappointments that we have assumes something that is of grave error. It assumes that God is supposed to give us anything that we ask for without question, the way we ask for it. So let me ask you a few questions, and I really want responses. If you have prayed for something desperately and you have gotten the answer that you wanted, or an, in fact, let me even give you my own example first before you answer my question. One of the most um, dire situations I've ever been in where I have cried out to God is on the toilet. <laughs> it is after eating something that I wasn't meant to eat and my stomach is killing me and I really feel like I'm going to die the next minute. And you hear me, especially when I was a kid, you would just be passing the room and you hear somebody shouting, oh God, <laughs> only now, just, this, just save me from this world. Just save me from this one. I'm standing here today, which means God has said my prayer. <laughs> but if you have ever prayed for anything and you have gotten the answer that you wanted or you have gotten an answer that was better, raise your hand. So I'm probably seeing about 80 to 90% of the room. If it has happened two times, in your life, raise your hand. So another 80 to 90% of the time. If you think it's happened three times, raise your hand. If you think it's happened more, raise your hand. Thank you very much. So you see, this aspect of thinking that prayer doesn't work because we had one instance, does it, does it sound a little bit foolish now? Because what we are really asking for is for God to be the genie in a bottle or in a lamp. For him to do everything exactly as we want it. My second question may not be necessary, but I'll ask it anyway. Would you like for God to answer every single one of your prayers the way you want it to be? <laughs> if you answered yes, if you answered yes, I have news for you. In this world that we're in, it's not possible. You know why? Let me explain. There is one job opportunity. 
There is one job opportunity in Chevron. One job opportunity. Yemi is applying for that job. Yemi is a Christian. Unbeknownst to Yemi, Olumide is applying for the same job. At least you know that it's impossible for both of them to get the job. Right? So it is not possible for everything that you ask for to be answered in the way that you ask for it. If you answered no to that question, then you have answered a further question. And that question is, or that statement is basically the fact that you don't trust yourself. You don't trust the fact that you can make requests in your fallible wisdom. Do you realize then that it means that when you pray, whatever happens, you should accept it? It doesn't matter even if that result is a death. Alec Mottier, an Irish Bible scholar, writes in his book, in an exposition of the book of James, that if it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I for one would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. We can't say because we didn't get what we wanted on occasion, then it means that prayer does not work. And as such, stop praying. When the very opposite of that means that we should pray no more. Do you get what I'm saying? Jesus is saying that a human parent will not give stone for bread. Or he will not give snake for fish when that child comes to ask of him. What if that child comes and asks for, for stone? What if that child comes and asks for, for the snake? I dare say that the majority of parents would not give them what they're asking for, isn't it? Maybe some, some parents would give. But you know what we call those kind of parents? Irresponsible. Certainly our Heavenly Father, who is ultimately good and wise, would never give us something harmful, even if, even if we ask for it urgently and repeatedly, for the simple reason that he only gives his children good gifts. You see, the problem is that sometimes we want to define what good is. We, on, on Wednesday, we had a theology day, and Femi said something. There are things that are transcendental. We don't create them. We only discover them. We cannot create good. We only discover good. We see something that is good. We can't create beauty. We only discover beauty. The reason we can't create it is because it is transcendental. It is above us as human beings to create it. It is God that can determine what is ultimately good. We can thank God that the granting of our needs is conditional. Not only on our asking, seeking, and knocking, but also on whether what we desire by asking, seeking, and knocking is good. Number three. This one is an attempt at answering a Q&A question. You might say to me, Francis, all this talk about being persistent in prayer, it doesn't sit too well with me. You are telling me that God needs to be told what we lack, or that he needs to be bullied into giving it. Is it not the same Jesus that says that our Heavenly Father knows even before we ask him and he cares for us? Even you, 
as a parent, even me as a parent, I don't wait for my children to come and ask me before I supply their needs. So you're saying that, why should we be praying in this sort of way? Because it's, it's, it's labeling God in some sort of a funny way. Well, this is the response I can give. God's giving depends on our asking, not because he is ignorant or reluctant until we persuade him. The reason has to do with us and not to do with him. When we say, for instance, that we prevail on God, what we are actually doing is that we are prevailing on ourselves to submit to God. There is a story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, right? What happens? Genesis, uh, Jacob is coming back is coming back from somewhere, and he knows that he's going to meet his estranged brother, Esau, right? But he's coming with his small family, you know, his wives and his sons, right? But he hears that Esau is coming with 400 men. And he believes that this guy is coming to basically attack him. In fact, the first thing he does is he separates his family. He puts one part in one, uh, he puts one section of his family so that his, the entire family is not wiped out. He says one people should go this way, let some other people go this way, right? And then he... He's thinking about how he's going to meet Esau. And then he then, at night, he decides to be, be alone. And then one man just comes and just starts to fight him. Just like that, you know. And he wrestles this guy all night. At some point during the wrestling match, he realizes that he's doing what? He's wrestling with God. And when God wants to end the fight, he just dislocates his, his hip, right? And when God wants to leave him, he holds God and he says, look, I will not let you go unless until you bless me. And what happens? God actually blesses him. What happens when he finally meets Esau? He sees the 400 men coming, and then Esau just runs, hugs him, kisses him, and says, and he was like, oh, look at the things I brought for you. And it's completely different from what he thought, isn't it? The aspect of prevailing on God is a concept that we've kind of misappropriated a little bit. It is not that we are the ones that prevail on God. In actual fact, what was happening here was that it was God that prevailed over Jacob, so that he was brought to the point whereby he was able to receive the blessing that God always wanted to give to him. You see, prayer is not unseemly. What it is, is that it is the method with which God has given us so that we can express our dependence upon him. And this brings me to my third point, the basis for persistence. You see, the key to persistent trust and persistent prayer is to understand the relationship Jesus indicated in this parable. He says that as good, irresponsible, earthly father we find, that father cannot come close to the fatherhood of God. What could be harder than making people who were once enemies sons? Think about whatever you want to ask God. And Contrast it against the fact that he has already made you sons. He has made you children. He has made you the very thing that he is using here as an example so that you can see that with your own children, it is almost automatic in the way your children come to you to ask you for things and the way you are able to, you are able to give to them. He labels you as evil and then asks you to contrast him against a God who is all good, all wise, all knowing. What could you possibly ask him if he has already done what you would have termed impossible? How did God make us sons? We take our perfect example from Jesus Christ. 
And we can take our example from his own prayers. On his way to the cross, he demonstrated perfect persistence in the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, O Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Having suffered profusely at the hand of the Roman soldiers, he prays to God and he asks him to forgive them. In anguish on the cross, he cries out to God and he asks, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even up until his last breath, his trust in God is persistent and he prays to God and says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is not the death of his sister. This is his own death. But ultimately, ultimately, it is his death on the cross that gives us the right to come to God and call God Father. Not just Father, Abba. You see, Abba is a word that is intimate. It is like saying Papa. On more than one occasion, throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples to become like little children. If we belong to Christ, God is our Father and we are his children. And as such, we can approach him as children do their parents. Consistently and persistently, without shame, because we totally depend on him. Let me tell you, you don't have a clue about what will happen tomorrow. Or even in the future. But your father knows. In fact, not only does he know, he's orchestrating everything. Do you think God is making plans for your life based on your tomorrow alone? Is he making plans for your life based on this life that we see here? Or is he making plans on your life ultimately based on eternity? I'm going to end with this statement and I urge you to think about it. There is a sense where you either get what you prayed for or you get something much better even though it may look a whole lot worse. There is a sense whether where you either get what you prayed for or you get something much better even though it may look a whole lot worse. Let us pray. Father, oh Father, help us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in you, oh Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos <laughs>